it really is a joy to be with you. I'm so sorry. I feel I should start with an apology when I was not back uh, here with you uh, back in October. You saw my face on that screen. I can't imagine how terrifying uh, that must have been uh, as I appeared on your screen. So I do apologize. Uh, As Chris said, we had a bit of a COVID situation going around our local church context. So I thought I wouldn't bless you and take the risk of uh, trying to share that. But such a, a great thing. Uh, to be with you here this morning. So thank you so much for your invitation. Quick bit about me. Um, My name is Chris. I'm married to Meg, uh, who's been my wife for getting on for close for 20 years now. Uh, I'm currently the minister, team leader at Christchurch Baptist Church, where just along the coast, uh, where I've been now for nearly a decade. Um, Prior to that, I was uh, minister for mission and evangelism at Westcliff Baptist Church, which was just a bit further uh, along the coast on the Bournemouth uh, and Paul border. Uh, Meg and I have got five children. Uh, I'm not biologically responsible for all five. I kind of feel it's important to say that. Uh, You get judged sometimes uh, when you admit to having five children. Uh, My eldest, Toby, uh, is with us here this morning. Uh, He's the one member of my fan club. So, so grateful uh, that he's joined us this morning. Yeah, why not? Thank you. I'd say I've got five children. We, we've got three biological children and we, we've adopted two. And that explains why I look like this. I feel that's important to say because uh, I know some of you know a great barrier to worship is why is a 21-year-old look so old and haggard? You know, what's, what's going on in that guy's life? Five children uh, is the answer. So that barrier for worship hopefully is now out the way. Thank you for having me with us, with you. We're going to be thinking this morning a bit about worship, and we're going to be thinking about an intriguing little story that's captured at the very beginning of John chapter 12. The same story is captured in Matthew's gospel. It's also in the gospel of Mark as well. It's the story of Mary anointing Jesus with oil. Now, my guess is this is probably a fairly familiar story for many of you here today. But before I read the scripture verses to us, I'd really love for us just to have a look at the context because this is a really significant moment in the ministry of Jesus. In John chapter 11, the chapter before the one we're going to look at today, we see in a sense the conclusion of what we might call Jesus' public ministry, or at least his more public ministry. In John chapter 11, verse 54, it says, Jesus no longer moved about publicly among the people of Judea. Instead, he withdrew to the region near the wilderness where he stayed with his disciples. Up until this point, from that first moment where John the Baptist announces, pointing at Jesus, look, here he is. Here is the Lamb of God. Here is the Savior of the world. Here is the King of Kings, the Lord of Lords. From that moment onwards, the the ministry of Jesus was nonstop. It was pretty frantic. Even when Jesus went off to try and find some R&R, we read in the scriptures that people followed him and there were already people at the places where he was trying to hide. It sounds a bit like being in our household. I go and hide in the cupboard and there's already five children in the cupboard hiding in the place where I'd like to be. And then as we enter into John chapter 12, the tone of the story starts to change quite dramatically. Everything suddenly in John's gospel starts to become a bit more sober, a bit more uh, reflective as we enter into this week-long stage of what we might call Jesus' more private ministry before his ministry ends ultimately in death. But of course, it doesn't end in death. It ends in glorious resurrection, which is the reason we have hope still today. 
In John chapter 11, Lazarus has died. Jesus has traveled to the home of uh, Lazarus in, in Bethany. And Jesus in John chapter 11 declares those incredible words of the Christian faith. I am the resurrection. I am the life. Whoever believes in me will live even though they may die. Words we hear at most funerals. But actually, these are not words for a funeral, are they? These are words for the living as well. These are words of hope for us even today. Because of the resurrection of Jesus, we have hope. In John chapter 11, we get the shortest verse in Scripture, which tells us a huge amount, I think, about the heart of Jesus. Jesus wept. John 11, verse 35. Jesus wept. And then Jesus calls this dead man out of the grave alive. Lazarus, come out. You're dead, but you're going to be alive. And then John chapter 12, our scripture verse for today, tells us what happens next. And we should remind ourselves that all of this is happening about six days before the events that we celebrate around Easter. So if you've got a Bible, please do turn to John chapter 12 with me. Uh, If you've got a traditional Bible, you can turn the pages Uh, If you've got a modern Bible, then light up your face blue. It's always good to see whose faces go blue uh, when they read the Bible. Uh, John chapter 12. I'm going to read verses 1 through to 11. It says, Six days before the Passover, Jesus came to Bethany where Lazarus lived, whom Jesus had raised from the dead. Here a dinner was given in Jesus' honor. Martha served while Lazarus was among those reclining at the table with him. And then Mary took about half a liter of pure nard, an expensive perfume, and she poured it on Jesus' feet and wiped his feet with her hair. And the house was filled with the fragrance of the perfume. The house was filled with the fragrance of the perfume. But one of his disciples, Judas Iscariot, who was later to betray him, objected. Why wasn't this perfume sold and the money given to the poor? It was worth a year's wages. He did not say this because he cared about the poor, but because he was a thief. As keeper of the money bag, he used to help himself to what was put into it. Jesus responds, leave her alone. It was intended that she should save this perfume for the day of my burial. You will always have the poor among you, but you will not always have me. Meanwhile, a large crowd of Jews found out that Jesus was there and they came, not only because of him, but also to see Lazarus whom he'd raised from the dead. So the chief priest made plans to kill Lazarus as well. For on account of him, many of the Jews were going over to Jesus and believing in him. So today we're thinking about this call. It's a biblical call. It's the call to worship. The call to worship. Well, first off this morning, let me try and define what I mean by worship by telling you what I don't mean by worship. So worship is not about singing songs, as we've been doing this morning. But of course, worship could include the singing of songs. Worship is not what we do together on a Sunday morning, traditionally in the UK, or on Sunday evening, or whenever we might do it in the week. Although, of course, worship might include this corporate gathering that we're enjoying this morning. Worship is not about our traditions, those things that you hold on dearly to. Worship is not about our liturgies or the confessions that we feel are really important in our journey of faith. 
Worship is not even about those mountaintop experiences that we may have been lucky enough to have had in our journey of faith. Although, of course, worship can include those experiences. Worship is not about us. Worship is not about you, and worship is not about me. And I think churches stumble around on this theme of worship an awful lot. When you think about it, it's been the cause of many a church split. How many brand new denominations have been formed because of an argument about worship? People will tell you whether or not worship was good or it was bad. People will tell you whether or not the worship excited them or they found it absolutely dull. I can't tell you how many people have joined the churches I've led because of their worship. And I can't tell you how many people have left the churches that I've led because of their corporate worship experience. But worship is not about touching us. Worship is about um, us touching God. Sunday lunchtimes, I think, are, are probably the worst time for it. I wonder how many times in the UK today, around 12 o'clock, 12.30 uh, perhaps, I wonder how many times the same refrain will be voiced in households around the dinner table. Oh, I didn't get anything out of that sermon today. The worship did absolutely nothing for me. Oh, those singers, weren't they out of tune this morning? I wish they'd sort themselves out. The techies, why couldn't they get the right words on the screen at the right time? I mean, how hard can it be? Lunch times. Oh, why? <laughs> we won't even talk about the lighting people, will we? Because, I mean, let's face it, they are the worst of the worst. Do you know, I think sentences like these actually are dry rot in a church family. They are dry rot. They're a source of infestation. Why? Because they completely miss the point of what worship is and more importantly, who worship is for. Worship was never ever intended to be about you and me. Worship is something that we give. It's not something that we're to take. Do you know, if my focus is on me when I walk into an incredible church building or gathering like this, if it's about me having my needs met, if it's about me uh, just being thrilled and delighted and excited when I gather with other people, then we've moved about as far away as we can possibly move from a biblical concept of worship. And do you know, to my shame, I find myself going to that place to offer myself as well. I found myself sitting around the, the dinner table saying, oh, the sermon was absolutely diabolical, and it was me that preached it. <laughs> now, just before anyone starts to throw stones or tomatoes or whatever it is you throw at people in Hampshire, it, it needs to be said that when we worship, of course, some of these things that I've spoken of can be a byproduct, if you like, of our, our worshiping experience. That's a grace of God thing. But here's the point, they should never be the primary focus of what we offer to God. If our primary focus is the byproduct, then we're focusing on the wrong thing. It's all about me, Jesus. It's all about me, as if you should do things your way. Now, we've never sung it. Well, I just did. Sorry about that. We've probably never sung those words, but how often have our lives reflected that as our reality? 
Warren Wiersbe once said this, and I think this is so good. He says, if you worship because it pays, it will not pay. If you worship because it pays, it will not pay. So if all of that is not what worship is, how can we define it? Now, a few years back in a a previous church, I had a go at trying to define worship. It's an incredibly difficult thing to do. If you gather in small groups within the life of your church, I challenge you in your small groups this week to try and write a definition of worship. And this is what I came up with. I don't think it's perfect, but it's where I landed. My definition is this, is worship, worship is offering the best of who I am in response to who God is. Now, my original definition said the best of who I am. Actually, I think I can take that out. Worship is offering who I am in response to who God is. A very difficult thing to define worship. So if worship's difficult to define in words, how can we try and see worship? Well, I think in our story today, we see worship. We see worship happening in John chapter 12. And what's so interesting to me is there's not a single sermon that's been preached and there is not a single song that has been sung in this act of worship which is offered What we see is the heart response of an individual before their saviour. And actually, maybe that's a better definition of worship for us, isn't it? Worship is our response to who Jesus is and what Jesus has done. That's what's going on in the life of Mary today. Well, the Apostle Paul in Romans chapter 12, verse 1, offers us a definition of worship as well. And he speaks of worship being an act of offering ourselves as a living sacrifice. He says, this is our spiritual service of worship, to offer ourselves as a living sacrifice. In other words, take your everyday life, take your ordinary life, you're sleeping, you're eating, you're going to work, you're walking around, you're being part of a church community and place all of that stuff before God as an offering. That, says Paul, is true worship. The heart of worship begins from the heart. Now, I've said an awful lot there, but it seems really important that I say all of that before we dig into our theme today. Because we're going to take a look this morning at this incredible story of the interaction between Mary and Jesus. And what I'd love for us to do this morning is see what the application is for us today, so that we might just leave this place feeling uh, transformed in our walk with Jesus. Now, just before I get to Mary, I want to make two quick observations about the other two characters who are in the story, because I think they've got something to teach us as well about worship. And those characters are Martha and they're Lazarus. So let's uh, start off with Martha. She features in verse 2, and Martha's doing what Martha does best. She's serving. Did you notice that? Martha is serving. Once again, she's busy pottering around behind the scenes whilst everyone else is having dinner. Lazarus is chilling out there. You imagine that Mary is chilling out there with Jesus as well. Martha is working really hard. Now, you might recall that Luke tells a story about Martha. It's another story. And in that story, she's moaning, isn't she? Lord, don't you care that my sister Mary has left me to do all the work by myself? Would you please tell her to help me? And if you remember the story, you remember that Jesus has to give to her a gentle rebuke. He says, look, you're worried about so many things. You get upset about so much, Martha. But Mary has chosen what is better. What a contrast to our story today where Martha is serving with a completely different attitude. 
We learn from Martha, uh, that, or what we learn from Martha is that being a servant is an act of worship. But what makes it an acceptable act of worship as opposed to one which is not is about doing that act of worship with the right attitude. Do you know, I get the sense from our story today that Martha's ministry, Martha's worship of service was actually enabling the different ministry of others to happen in our story today. And I want to just for a moment stop and celebrate all the folk here at Waypoint who work so hard behind the scenes. I want to thank all of the Marthas who enable the ministry of others, which perhaps is a bit more public to happen. I just wonder as a church if you can celebrate them this morning. Let's say thank you to them. Back in my home church, we've got a Jean who is a Martha. She's always there. She's always in the kitchen. She's always putting coffee in my hand. I love Jean. And then the second character in our story is Lazarus. And and in a sense, his worship is witness. Lazarus was quite literally a first-person witness of this miracle-working power of Jesus. Lazarus is literally living proof of what Jesus is able to do in a person's life. But what do you notice about Lazarus? You notice he doesn't make himself the center of attention and make Jesus the sideshow. Did you notice that? I guess he could have done that, couldn't he? Hey, everyone, I'm here. Come on, crowds, come on in. I once was dead, but now I'm alive. My name's Lazarus. Touch me, poke me, feel me. Do you want my autograph? What does Lazarus do? He's simply a silent signpost to Jesus. What's intriguing in our scriptures is never is Lazarus recorded as saying a single word, but he's still a witness. I think that's really significant. It's what Jesus has done in his life that makes him a witness. And in a sense, Lazarus is just a silent signpost who is pointing people to Jesus without even saying a word. And as I think about Lazarus, I think about people who have done that in my life, people who have been a signpost without necessarily speaking, just saying, Jesus, this way, Chris, come and find him. Because when you find him, your life will be changed. Chris, when you find him, your life will be transformed. I thank God for the Lazaruses in my life. And I'm sure you'll want to thank God for the Lazaruses in yours. So two important aside comments about ways we can worship. We can worship through right attitude. We see that in the example of Martha. But also we can worship by being a witness, even a silent one, to Jesus. And then we have Mary. In our family, it probably won't surprise you to know that we like Where's Wally books. You know Where's Wally books? Um, Have you ever tried doing the audio book of Where's Wally? It's not very interesting. I noticed as well that one of our kids actually put Where's Wally in their reading log for school, and their teacher didn't seem to notice. But what I love about Mary is Mary is no Wally, is she? Mary is always incredibly easy to find. What you notice about Mary is Mary is always at the feet of Jesus. And in Mary, we see the heart response of a true worshiper. Mary is content to be at the feet of Jesus, and she's content to stay there. She is no Wally. Lord, I pray, would you make my heart more like that of Mary's? Lord, would you stop me from being distracted by all those other things that happen in life that take me away from your feet? It's so obvious, isn't it, in our scripture reading today that Jesus cares about the hearts of worshippers deeply. In fact, what makes worship good or what makes worship bad is our heart response. 
So three things this morning, don't worry, they're fairly quick, that Mary can teach us. And then after we've heard this, I just want to invite us to respond this morning. And the first thing is this, is there is a call to be a smelly worshipper. We see that in verse 3. Did you notice that in our scripture reading, the NIV version of the Bible tells us that Mary took this pint of this incredibly expensive perfume and she poured it over the feet of Jesus? Well, so what, you might be thinking. But it should be noted that this was no cheap odor toilet. This was a very expensive perfume that Jesus was so keen to point out in verse 5. It's pointed out there that this was a year's worth of wages. Now, what's the average salary in the UK at the moment? Apparently, according to Google, it's never wrong, is it? It's somewhere around £25,000 a year. Wow, what a moment. Here in this moment, Mary is pouring £25,000 over the feet of Jesus. And then after she's done that, she wipes his feet with her hair. Now, this, this perfume was expensive because it was probably imported from India. It had probably come from the Himalayan mountains or somewhere like that. So that's why it's expensive. But can you imagine the smell for just a moment? The whole house must have been smell, uh, filled with the smell of this perfume. 25,000 pounds worth of perfume. I wonder what that smells like. You see, this is a moment of worship. This is not a moment of waste. This is a moment of worship where the fragrance of Mary's worship fills the room. Do you know, I find that image so beautiful. I find it captivating that whenever a worshipper spills out their heart and offers their worship, there's this contagious smell that fills the room. I wonder if you've ever worshipped and kind of smelt that smell in the room. It's not a physical smell, but you're just aware of the, the fragrance of Jesus, the fragrance of the worship that's being offered. And you can imagine in our story, can't you, that this would have been quite a contrast to the dry, arid smell that would have been outside. But inside the house, there's this sweet, amazing smell. I love being around worshippers. I love being around worshippers because there's nothing more attractive than followers of Jesus offering their heartfelt worship to Jesus. I have a sense in which our worship to Jesus is actually contagious. That's probably one of the biggest calls on us as a church is to be authentic in our worship so that when others come and others see that worship, they say, wow, look how much they love Jesus. I'd really love to uh, love Jesus as much as they do. I've got to come to know him. And the Apostle Paul in 2 Corinthians chapter 2 says something very similar. This is the message version of the Bible. It says, in Jesus, God leads us from place to place in one perpetual victory parade. Through us, he brings knowledge of Christ everywhere we go. People breathe in the exquisite fragrance. Because of Christ, we give off a sweet scent rising to God, which is recognized by those on their their way to salvation. An aroma redolent with life. An aroma redolent with light. I have no idea what redolent means, but it sounds good, doesn't it? You see, the church needs smelly. It needs aroma redolent worshippers. Our love for Jesus ought to be spilling out of us, and other people ought to be able to spot it and even smell it as we offer our worship. And I want to encourage you this morning, don't be afraid to offer your smell into this room. Nice smells. Fragrance was probably a better word, wasn't it? Offer your fragrance into this room this morning in your heartfelt response to Jesus. For those of us that are old like me, you'll remember the words of Graham Kendrick. May the fragrance of Jesus fill this place. 
the lovely fragrance of Jesus rising from the sacrifice of lives laid down. You see, it's not about us. It's not about what we take. It's about what we give of lives laid down in adoration. And I'm wrestling with a question for myself this morning. Maybe you want to wrestle with it as well. Is does my worship permeate the space that I inhabit? Do others spot my heartfelt response to Jesus? There is nothing more attractive than authentic, genuine worship offered to Christ. Secondly, there's a challenge in our text, I think, to respond with our hearts and not to our critics. This is in verses 4 to 6. In verse 4, the mood suddenly changes at this dinner party. Suddenly, the dinner party becomes very tense. Have you ever been at one of those dinner parties? Oh, this is fun. Oh, tense moments. Can we quickly leave? Some people suddenly start shaking their heads. They're in shock. They're in disbelief at what Mary is doing. And as they watch, Mary grabs hold of the last few drops of this perfume in her flask. And she tips those drops over the feet of Jesus. And then she unties her long flowing hair, which is a bit like mine. And then suddenly she stoops down and she wipes the feet of Jesus with them. And the shock silence is then broken. It's broken by the sounds of murmuring that start to swell up in the, cor- in, in the corner as there's this tirade of angry words. And the angry words are coming from predictable lips. Why all of this waste? Why was this fragrant perfume not sold and 25,000 pounds given to the poor? And I think to myself, what would I have done if I was in the room? How would I have responded whilst Mary was over the other side of the room engaging in this incredible act of worship? Would I have said, what a waste. Mary, you're crazy. 25 grand down the drain, just like that. You see, without understanding why Mary did what she did in that moment, without then hearing the approval of Jesus over Mary's life, I've got a horrible feeling I might well have joined in the chorus of disapproval. I'd have been thinking through all the really good things that you could have done with that money. Mary, I could have bought so many Costa coffees with 25 grand. Mary, why didn't you give that money to the local food bank? Why didn't you give that to some other charity that could give clothes and shoes to the needy? Can you think of all the medicines, Mary, that could have been brought with that money and you've just tipped it over the feet of Jesus? I wonder how you would have responded watching that act. But then I think too, and perhaps this is even more challenging for me as somebody who loves Christ, is what would I have done if I was Mary in that moment? What if I was the one who was sloshing around the perfume and starting to wipe his feet with my hair? Would I have stopped as soon as the uh, fragrant-filled room also started to fill up with the sound of my critics? Would I have stopped in my act of worship? You see, verse 7 is absolutely brilliant in our text. Jesus says this. He says, leave her alone. Here is somebody worshipping me. She's anticipating. She's honouring the day of my burial. You're always going to have the poor amongst you, but you're not always going to have me. Mary shows the heart of a worshipper, doesn't she? And what makes her gift so beautiful is that her gift was so costly. Do you remember the story of the widow's might? What did Jesus say to her? Jesus looked up. He saw the rich putting their gifts into the temple treasury. He also saw a poor widow put in two very small copper coins. And then he says this. The plain truth is that this widow has given by far the largest offering today. All these others made offerings that they'll never miss. 
but she gave extravagantly what she could not afford. She gave her all. You see, God always honors those things that we give which are costly. 2 Samuel verse 24, uh, verse, chapter 24, verse 24, I will not sacrifice anything to the Lord that costs me nothing. You see, God doesn't need our money. God is not that interested in our money, but he wants you. He wants your heart, and that's probably the most costly thing that you and I can give in our worship. Offer your bodies as a living sacrifice, Paul says in Romans 12. Now, of course, Judas didn't get this, did he? But neither did the other disciples we discover. If you read the other Gospels, they joined in with all the complaint that was going on. You see, here's the thing. People won't always understand when we give that which is costly to us. But Mary didn't stop worshipping God lavishly just because of the critique of others. Mary didn't listen to her critics, but she listened to her heart and she continued in her response. I feel so challenged in the example of Mary today not to be restricted by the chains of approval of others that can be wrapped around me. Wouldn't it be great if in our worship those chains dropped to the floor and there was a large clunking sound as we say, do you know what, I'm going to offer my worship and I don't care what my critics say. Maybe today's the day to let the chains drop. Maybe today's the day to let your heart respond as you've always wanted to let it respond. So be a smelly worshipper. Listen to your heart and not to your critics. And then finally, and this is really quick, in verses 7 to 8, spend time at the toes of Jesus. You see, there's something about Mary, sorry, I mean to reference a film there, there's something about Mary in this moment which goes so much deeper, isn't there, than we might initially tell from the story. Mary in this moment seems to have this deeper sense of what's going on in the life of Jesus, even though the other disciples didn't seem to spot it, despite the fact that they'd spent more time in the presence of Jesus than Mary probably had. Mary seemed to know what was coming up in the life of Jesus. Mary seemed to sense that in a few days' time that Jesus was going to be facing the cross, that Jesus' earthly life was going to be coming to the end. And Mary engages in what we could call a prophetic act here. She spills these perfumes over the body of Jesus as a prophetic act, as a sign of what was to come in six days' time. In a sense, Mary is preparing the body of Jesus for burial before he's even died. Somehow Mary had a greater spiritual insight into what was going on than anyone else did around her. And I think to myself, why? How is that possible? And I think it's possible because Mary spends so much time at the toes of Jesus. You see, that's how we get to the place where we learn how we please God the most, by spending time at the toes of Jesus. That's how we get to the place where we somehow get to a deeper connection with Jesus by spending time at the toes of Jesus. Who knows, if we spend even more time at the toes of Jesus than we spend already, just maybe Jesus can start to use us in the kind of prophetic act that he was using Mary in in this moment. It's a brilliant story, isn't it? So what do we learn from this story? We discover that worship is not about us. It's not about you and me. It's not about what we take. It's about what we give from the heart. We hear the challenge to be a smelly worshiper, to to offer fragrant worship to Jesus. 
that others see, others smell, and they're attracted towards him. We hear the challenge to respond with our hearts and not to our critics. And then we hear the challenge to spend time at the feet of Jesus. There's a word I want to leave with you as a church today, and it's the word ponder. Ponder. I wonder if you've ever tried to ponder something at 100 miles an hour. Do you remember the last time you were driving down the M27 at 100 miles an hour? Who remembers that time? Oh, nobody. That's strange, isn't it? You see, here's the truth. You cannot ponder something at 100 miles an hour. All you will see out of your car window apparently is a blur. If you're going to ponder, you need to pull into the slow lane. If you're going to ponder, you might even need to stop at the service station or the lay-by. If you're going to ponder deeply the things of Jesus and have the kind of connection that Mary had, you've got to ponder the feet of Jesus and spend time there. And I feel that's a word for me today. Chris, it's time to slow down and enjoy your relationship with Jesus. Get out of the fast lane. And I just wonder if it's a word for others of us. It's time to ponder.